know, man. I get up. So yeah, I tried. I recently tried fixing my sleep schedule slightly. So for example, yesterday I went to bed at like twelve a.m., hoping to get up at like seven, and you know, nice and early. I still ended up getting up at eleven a.m., so that didn't work out. But um, you know, slowly but steadily, I'm thinking of. I think. I mean, maybe if I become a little more careful with my routine. i will feel better about my day because these days i don't know what has happened like i wake up and then it's like the sun is not there anymore and then i'm like okay it's late so let's just watch a movie or something so i think that uh, having a good schedule or even having a good sleep schedule is like totally overrated like for one because it is i mean because there is like the science on sleep is anyways very disputed so you'll see in a lot of places that uh, like you should at least get 6 to 8 hours of sleep or something but that's just a like it's a bro fact it's not an actual scientific fact that you right right it. right so i mean right no no but it's, it's weird thing you know of what i've seen that like you you need sleep to recover though like if you're working out and you're playing football and then the next morning you wake up or right. you're but sore you need do you know to the recover. thing is so i uh, i was very bored over the past year like expected day so i tried to map out my circadian rhythm like i tried to see what are the times where i actually feel sleepy and i do not right interesting so i realized that my like according to my uh, whatever the the kind of clock that i might have inside the the time that i feel the most sleepy at night is around 10 10 or 10:30 so i tried sleeping at 10:30 for a week or so what i realized was that I, if i sleep exactly at the time when i start feeling very drowsy and sleepy the optimum amount of sleep that i require is 5 hours so after 5 hours i will be totally right. alert like like exactly like totally alert after waking up which is like totally like which is a weird concept for me because every time i sleep for like 10 or 11 hours every day and then i wake up drowsy and like for the first half an hour after that i don't know anything of what's happening around me and then i pick up my mobile phone and whatever so for me sleep is usually i sleep at like 4 in the morning then sleep for 10 hours and so that was like a totally new concept for me like if you exact if you try to find out the times when you actually feel very drowsy and sleepy and you sleep at those times so what i realized was that uh, personally it was like 5 hours of sleep which seemed to be optimum for me and also the cool thing is that if i sleep for those 5 hours i'll not feel tired at all in the entire day like probably around noon you can start feeling uh, a bit drowsy but then you can take a half an hour nap and then you will be wide awake for the entire day right so i, I mean, mean sleeping f- feeling sleepy feeling sleepy during the day like let's say you've had a nice 5 6 hours stretch of sleep and then if you still find yourself sleepy in like 3 hours from waking up or something that mostly has to do with uh, your insulin levels and your you know sugar levels in the blood it doesn't really have to do with the absolute like lack of sleep or anything right uh, so there's a lot of factors that go into there but i i i think i'll probably try or circuit into the experiment one of these days i've tried messing about with sleep schedules like as you guys know i tried the shringer thing i i even tried this uh, was it, i think it's called the uberman schedule where you basically like take two hour naps every two hour or something like that what 20 minute naps every two hours or something like that i tried that too for two days yeah I I tried that like I did not do it for too long. I did it for like two days maybe, and then I had such a terrible headache that I just gave up on it. It's also very incompatible with my general activity level, right? Because I right. generally have a high activity level, yeah. so I need 
like rest otherwise i'm just hurting all over so right uh, but i will try this experiment mapping out circadian rhythm santosh yeah, I mean, has a very fixed schedule i know for sure because yeah he sleeps at like 2 3 fix gets up at 9 and then he has a nap in the afternoon so it's i, I can't nap in the afternoon i just physically can't so i need like one stretch of sleep these days my afternoon nap is gone like i'm sleeping at 3 in the night and getting up at 11 in the morning and just working through the whole days yeah because you're having shivsagar sas yeah i'm already regretting it dude like i'm already regretting <laughs> yeah if you need us to stop the recording because you have to run to the washroom or something like that <laughs> hmm oh i want to listen to your conspiracy theories but let's let's say that for the end because i think our our uh, sort of protocol is that we first talk physics and then we talk like enjoyable stuff so okay um, but i okay. i don't think i'll be talking about uh, conspiracy theory because uh, it seems that the internet police the youtube and google right, algorithms right. they are trying to censor down everything that uh, like that seems to be spreading misinformation about covid so things actually get shut down if you and covid misinformation even if it's like yeah in quotes so even if it's like uh, a joke or something like even if you are making a joke if it seems to have any kind of vaccine misinformation or uh, misinformation about covid they'll get a very good opportunity to shut you down so that should probably be left in right out of the air right before we know it we get another call from kosa <laughs> <laughs> this time they ask us why is the interpol calling us <laughs> but okay well physics hmm i mean lately i've basically been thinking about addressing all of these you know swampland conjectures basically conjectures that were motivated from string theory and all of these things uh and recently people uh, are trying to think about them in terms of the like from from an ir perspective without talking about specific uv completion because you see there's there's a this this is this is called standing under under the string lamp post you guys might have heard of this but because they've spent so many years you know looking for theories that must be consistent with string theory and you know must uh agree with the predictions of string theory or you know in some limit reduced to string theory or something it's it it looks like we might miss out on a lot of other interesting theories just because we are to caught up with string theory so this this is what is colloquially called standing in the string lamp post and you miss a lot of stuff so there there's a lot of very very interesting conjectures uh that come from string theory some of them have been conclusively you know not con- well not conclusively but uh let's just say they have been disproved in some sense some of them uh what usually happens is that somebody finds a counter example and then they make the statement weaker and weaker and weaker until they until the statement has like no no practical utility at all so for example you guys must have heard of the weak gravity conjecture uh, in the in, in its strongest form the weak gravity conjecture basically says that uh, the so well in words one could say that gravity is the weakest of all forces uh and i mean technically speaking it would mean that the charge to mass ratio or the ratio of you know charges of some global symmetries to the charge of gravity which is mass uh is you know bounded so this this is the weak gravity conjecture in its strongest form now people found people have been claiming to find counter examples for a really long time so 
it keeps getting you know toned down into weaker and weaker gravity conjectures until i think there's the, the current thing that's being floated around is that uh, there exists at least one charge such that the charge to mass ratio is you know greater than 1 you know this is this is like a completely silly statement to make it, it it has absolutely no power at all so but the 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 interesting thing is now people are trying to probe these uh, conjectures from you know just effective field theories in the ir because we don't we it doesn't look like there's going to be any consensus soon about the quantum theory of gravity and uh, the our best bet is just to look at effective field theories and see if we can get physical insight from them so for example a very interesting thing you can show is that uh, in three and four dimensions at least uh, the weak gravity conjecture is precisely uh, equivalent to your usual unitarity bounds that you know follow from causality analyticity and all of this and now this is this is a sacred principle you see the weak gravity conjecture is not a sacred principle it's it's like just some conjecture that's motivated from you know examples known in string theory etc uh extremal black holes to be specific but uh the unitarity and analyticity causality these are very sacred principles and so if you can you know for example somehow reduce the weak gravity conjecture to this uh then it it has more solid footing so at least in some special cases like einstein maxwell theory in three and four dimension you can show that they're completely equivalent uh but aside from that there are some arguments uh where you you know compactify your theories to remove the t channel pole and so on and then you can show that they're still equivalent but that's mostly just uh you know why the hell is santosh liking an instagram post i shared while we're recording the podcast <laughs> okay oh i'm browsing through instagram as well yeah very interesting <laughs> i have a very short attention span yes i'm sorry yes 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 no oh, that's all of us you are a very short guy uh but uh <laughs> um i can actually tell you something uh a slightly i mean it's 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 a specific example but it's something interesting i think so when we derive for example you know positivity bounds or unitarity bounds they basically arise from the analytic structure of the s matrix so we say that you know we know we, the axioms of the s matrix uh, say that basically there's the, the only non analyticities you can have must be associated with physical processes so for example you can have poles wherever you have uh, bound states or you know one particle states and you can have branch cuts starting from you know the smallest multiparticle state you can have uh with with massless particles things become very tricky because then you have a branch cut extending all the way from the origin to infinity but let's ignore that stuff for a bit and now you basically uh, for example you just take a, uh, take some scattering some amplitude and you do a contour integral and you pick up all the non analyticities and you find that because of the branch cuts the the branch cut contributes to the contour integral via the discontinuity of the branch cut that's how like complex analysis works um and this discontinuity is related to the i mean as i'm sure you guys remember from optical theorem uh the discontinuity of uh, the, the imaginary part of the amplitude is related directly to the cross section and the cross section is strictly positive and so this is the origin of positivity bounds now you can you know differentiate to whatever order you want in you know your manusstam variables and you can keep extracting positivity for your coefficients uh now the thing is this all of this business also requires another uh, assumption to go in which is the fact that your amplitude is polynomially bounded uh this uh, assumption basically stems from locality assuming that like demanding the s matrix is local 
and Fraser proved a long time ago that uh, the sufficient condition is that it's bounded by S squared. This is for the Fraser bound. Um, and the, it, when you write down your dispersion relation for your uh, S matrix, the boundedness uh, basically translates to the number of subtractions you can write down. And the number of subtractions are, the, the subtraction terms are basically the terms which uh, will be there irrespective of analyticity. So it's not like everything in the S matrix is determined by analyticity. Some parts of it are specific to theory because you see, this was Gelman's you know, original hope that you should be able to fix the S matrix completely from you know, unitarity, analyticity, all of this nonsense. But I mean, as we know, that's not quite true. And uh, there is always some theory specific content in your S matrix. So every, which is why different theories will have different S matrix. So you can't. And so precisely this is the information that's encoded in the subtraction functions. That, so the part, the part of the S matrix is specific to your theory. And this subtraction coefficients you cannot determine from any analyticity properties over here. Uh, now the number of these subtractions depend on how badly your thing is bounded polynomially. So if it's bounded by S to the N, for example, then you'll have N minus one uh, subtractions. Uh, you have N subtractions, which is a polynomial to the power N minus one. So the Froissart bound says it's bounded by S squared. So now you have two subtractions. So basically the sum total of this whole story is that uh, assuming that your amplitude is bounded by S squared, you have two unknown parameters in your dispersion relation for the S matrix, which you cannot determine from analyticity. Uh, and so, it, so, so some coefficients, maybe the coefficients that contribute up to order S squared into your S matrix, you cannot fix the coefficients from analyticity. They are, I mean, they're, they're external inputs. But a very interesting thing happens if you uh, study theories with fermions, because the thing is with, with all, in all known theories with fermions, uh, and I mean, I don't know of a rigorous proof for this, but at least in all the known examples, uh, the fermion amplitudes uh, actually are bounded by S and not S squared, like in the forward limit. So now what, now you see this kind of makes life easy for us, because if something is bounded by S instead of S squared, then you know that there are fewer subtraction constants. So you know that there is, there is a smaller amount of information that is theory specific. You can determine more and more things uh, by just, you know, unitarity or whatever. And uh, the, there was a paper late last year uh, by Raman and these people, which basically did this to constrain, you know, if you look at, if you try to study the standard model effective field theory, and you start looking at dimension six operators. Now the thing is now, so I said that the amplitude is bounded by S. Let's for, for a general amplitude, uh, the piece of the amplitude that's proportional to S is part of the subtraction and it cannot be determined by analyticity, as I just said. Uh, but if you, so, but if you look at what kind of operators actually generate amplitudes that scale at S, then these are precisely operators of dimension six. And this is just from power counting. You see, if you have a dimension six operator contributing to a four point function, then there is uh, two residual powers of momentum left. So there's a P squared dependence or so dependence on S. S is your matrix time variable. Um, so now you know that there is a, so you now know that, so basically using standard analytic properties of the S matrix, you cannot constrain coefficients of dimension six operators in the standard model effectively. Uh, and this is because it's, in, it's part of the subtraction coefficients. Uh, and what are dimension six operators? You can have things like, you know, for example, partial pi to the cube. 
partial pi to the cube, that's dimension six. And you know, the, so it, there'll be a factor of momentum on each external leg and then there's a propagator. So P to the four by P squared. So again, as P squared. And the, uh, the more interesting thing is fermionic operators. So something like E bar E, E bar E, I mean, okay, there's gamma mu, E bar gamma mu, E, E bar gamma mu, E, something like this. So these are precisely the uh, operators that contribute to uh, two, point, two to two scattering, a four point amplitude, and they come at dimension six. And so now we see that these uh, dimension six operators will, you cannot determine the coefficients by analyticity. However, with fermionic operators, like I said, uh, the, 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 the amplitudes obey a sort of stronger bound. They're not bounded by a squared, but by S, at least in all known examples. And this, you know, this reduces the theory-specific content of the S matrix. It reduces the number of subtractions. Now you can work with just one subtraction. And what's even better is if instead of the amplitude, you look at uh, the first derivative of the amplitude, then this information also goes away. The subtraction, because I mean, the subtraction is proportional to this. So once you take a derivative, it goes away. Uh, so now, so now, now this, is our, uh, the, the, this is sort of the trick we, we're going to use. To constrain, uh, to find bounds on operators of dimension six, uh, you assume that the bound is weaker than that of uh, the Froissart bound, is stronger than that of the Froissart bound, uh, and then you, you, you basically. So uh, a crucial ingredient here again is you can't just do any kind of scattering to get uh, to get your bounds. You need to scatter uh, uh, things with opposite helicities, and that's because the the the, the fundamental reason why like positivity bounds exist like i said one way to look at it is the optical theorem but the more practical way is to look at the partial wave like expansion of these amplitudes and the partial wave expansion uh, i mean it very directly relates to unitarity simply requiring that you know the modulus squared of these partial waves must be positive uh, for the theory to be unitary and this this is like a simple way to guarantee unitarity uh, and the thing is if you scatter opposite helicity particles uh, then the partial wave amplitude, then the partial wave expansion starts at uh, j equal to one. So, the, so, so there is no s wave contributing to the partial wave amplitude. It, it starts from waves with angular momentum one, and this is very crucial because the the discontinuity across the s and u channels. That's just basically saying that you first consider a scattering of you know some fermion a b with a b. Uh, and then an anti-fermion fermion scattering AB bar and AB bar. And we know by SU crossing symmetry that they're related by the discontinuity across S and U channels. Uh, so, the, so this basically by scattering opposite helicity uh, particles, you can derive a bound on this. So this is not, not the, how exactly you do this is a technical matter and I uh, don't want to, I mean, talk about integration here, but uh, this has now, th this has some very interesting consequences for, uh, looking for UV completions of the standard model. Because you see, uh, the, our, our primary requirement was that the amplitude uh, scale slower than like S, not S squared. And this actually puts a lot of constraints on what kind of UV completions you can have in your theory. So for example, if you look at, uh, you know, uh, an amplitude like, like a dimension six operator, like the, like the four Fermi operator, like psi bar, psi, psi bar, psi, something like that. There's many ways it can come in the effective field theory. The simplest possible way is there is some heavy scalar that's mediating, you know, this exchange. So, uh, so like there's two fermions and then there's a scalar being exchanged and there's two fermions. And this kind of a diagram would contribute to the four Fermi uh, operator in your EFT. 
another would be something like a box diagram you know just like one external leg and then there is a square of uh intermediate exchange particles uh and the thing with all of these is that as long as you have uh you know it's uh, intermediate like the more complicated your feynman diagram is that is to say that there are more intermediate exchange states so there are more uh, propagators so there are more parts of 1 by p squared then you are safer and safer with your initial assumption that you know the amplitude scales slower than s uh, so i mean if you have four intermediate particles then you have a 1 by p to the 4 kind of thing so it's all very nice but uh, 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 but if you try to ub complete your theory with uh, a massive vector boson then you immediately run into a problem which is a very deep problem in all of standard model and it's that uh, a massive vector boson's propagator does not fall off as you know 1 by p squared at large p because uh, if you remember the massive vector boson propagator is not just 1 by p squared as it is for a photon it also has a minus p squared by uh, whatever term to it you see for large p instead of falling as 1 by p squared it actually becomes a constant and so if you try to uv compute your standard model where you know your dimension 6 operators come from uh, an exchange massive vector boson state then you have a lot of trouble with unitarity and causality so uh, something very simple something just a very simple thing like uh, trying to constrain you know some operators using unitarity actually gives you information about how you can how you will have to uv compute your standard model so now we know for example that it can be uv computed with Uh, a massive vector boson for dimension six operators. So I mean, it's 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 not something very profound, but I think it's an interesting progress because at least at this stage we don't have much better hope than uh, you know just looking at our standard model EFT and trying to see what constraints we can have on the UV completion. I think people have given up on trying to find the actual UV completion. We just hope to find more and more constraints on it and see how long can string theory survive the test. uh because most of the things for example there's a lot of very very interesting uh, open problems here like for example chetan might have heard of this because of you know you were interested in string theory uh it's often said that quantum gravity can have no global symmetries right right uh but right. that's And not the, a very string theory specific thing right it's uh, it's something like your uh, these swampland things only like you can think of a very basic thought experiment about what will happen if you throw in a charge into a black hole right yeah so that will just I mean, sort of the, ar- the argument the argument i know it just goes by saying that well i mean if there was a global charge then it would be eaten up by a virtual black hole right and so but 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 I, but all known like constructions Wait, of i don't get one thing guys uh, why cannot have a why can a quantum have no other global conserved charge uh a very simple reason is that if there was a conserved charge i mean if there was a global symmetry and then there would be a conserved charge locally conserved charge as is crucial uh and gravity has no uh, local like gauge invariant observables right so it's either that or uh, so there is another way of looking at this uh, like a thought experiment which is suppose you had a, a globally conserved charge or some globally conserved symmetry that corresponds to some charge so uh, you can think of it as a you have a flat asymptotically flat space time with just one black hole and you have some charge lying around in your universe but what happens if you throw in the charge into the black hole so essentially since that charge will now be shielded by the black hole and eventually you know that the black hole will evaporate or something so 
what you will have is a charge uh, that should be conserved because of the fact that it's globally conserved in your space time but due to the evaporation of the black hole or whatever since it goes into the event horizon this charge is not lost from your universe yes so one way of saying this is that your black hole will acquire this charge uh, but then over time since it evaporates there will be some final remnant form where the black hole will have like the charge will not change but the mass of the black hole will keep on reducing so there will be a there will be some point where the charge of the black hole will be greater than the mass in particular units if you talk about it which will sort of uh, violate this uh, positivity bound oh right right and this is this is exactly where this point so basically this, that's no precisely the violation of the example usual energy and momentum right so so the way this or is it so you can okay. way you solve this in certain theories is by assuming that the black hole cannot radiate after a particular point and that particular final state of that black hole is known as the extremal black hole so and the next yes, black exactly. hole is the one where the charge is essentially equal to the mass which yeah, is that's, that's... because the units yeah. do not match but in certain units you can have your charge is equal to the mass and the reason this is interesting is because uh, you don't even have to talk about black holes and uh, some gravitational theory to uh, like get situations where you have uh, something where the charge where you have this kind of a bound on your uh, charges and masses so a very easy place to look at uh, this particular bound being satisfied is uh, say your regular gauge theories so suppose you have some uh, u1 gauge theory uh, if you look at the instant term solutions of your u1 gauge theory so what are instant term solutions uh, uh, essentially if your theory uh, your like if you write down your theory in the form of field potentials f mu nu then the instant terms are those solutions that satisfy f mu nu equals uh, the star of f mu nu uh, where like you sort of say that this is the the self dual part of the your field theory these are the instant term solutions also very related to the classical solutions of your field theory uh so the point is that if you have uh, say instant term solutions of your uh, say an abelian gauge theory you will find out that this instant term solution will satisfy a particular kind of a bound which can be rewritten as this uh, exactly the same thing as the the charge is uh, should be less than equal to the mass of the instant term in the weak gravity conjecture right so uh, this in a gravitational case becomes the weak gravity conjecture but this in the case of right, right. regular gauge theories is uh, so this is known as bps bound uh Yeah. Uh, these particular these instant on states are known as bps states so the bps bound like in those cases uh, after some i think uh, boglomoni or something some kind of a guy and some prasad and soverfield so the the in case of instant on and in gauge theory it's called as the bps bound which essentially like at the very uh, like basic form what this bps bound uh, becomes is that uh, suppose you have uh, say x and y as two variables that you have then we sort of know like you can either call it amgm inequality or something like that that x plus y whole square has to be greater than uh, whatever 2xy i think right so this is known as uh, has to be greater than xy so this is the amgm inequality that we use in regular ar- arithmetic so what the uh, if you look at the instant on solutions of your gauge theory what you realize is that you can rewrite down like and you can rewrite your lagrangian in, or the hamilton in the form of so a plus b whole square which you can then invoke the amgm inequality to say that it should always be greater than 2 2ab and then this essentially is the like the crux of your bps uh, argument that uh, the particular right hand side that we have a plus b whole square that corresponds to 
the mass essentially or the energy momentum tensor of your uh, gauge theory and the left hand side corresponds to some kind of uh, thing that counts your state uh, that counts your charge and why that is the case because if you look at the energy momentum tensor of your gauge theories what you will have is that like if you write down that in the form of f mu nu you see that it has a very particular form while on the left hand side uh, why the ab term counts the charge is because this ab term is essentially f f mu nu f star mu nu which is a topological term and that when integrated uh, like if you use the stokes theorem you know that it becomes a boundary term and that boundary term essentially is the first chain number of your on your manifold which is which essentially counts on the charge of your uh, charge in the theory in the gauge theory that you have so like that that is a very long winded uh, way of saying that if you use a very basic amgm inequality a plus b whole square has to be greater than 2ab then that essentially is the crux of the bps argument why the mass of a black hole has all like this particular uh, case that you have for extremely black holes that m has to be greater than equal to the uh, charge essentially amartya but one thing that i found very interesting in what you were describing here i think you were you were describing how the positivity bounds arise and how they imply the weak gravity conjecture right uh, but uh, one very interesting thing and i think this particular work dates back to before uh, uh, any of the work on positivity bounds uh, was even started and this was the paper by edward witten on uh, the positive energy theorem so have you read that paper i haven't but i know that there is also a similar sounding paper by rathanji where he like a, an old paper which is again kind of like all of this positivity bounds argument but is it about null energy being violated by uh, you know the absence of positivity bound or something like that uh, so this particular paper is not so the reason i so this positive energy theorem uh, of course uh, this was not originally proved by witten this was originally proved by i think yao and uh, shoen or something so uh, but their proof was like supremely complicated and uh, what witten did was that he used a very very simple argument uh, which is uh, something also that you alluded to and i'll sort of explain it if i get the time so but witten used a very like a very beautiful argument to essentially show in a page or something that this positive energy theorem had to be true now what the positive energy theorem is that suppose you have some classical general relativity and uh, essentially uh, what it says is that some if you have an asymptotically flat space time and purely at the classical level what you will have is that uh, the uh, like suppose you have some uh, some kind of energy momentum distribution uh, what you can show is that at classical level the mass of that distribution always has to be positive so essentially if you look at the right. component of the energy momentum it's also called the positive mass theorem or something So, uh, but, but is it mass mass in gravitational theories very like, i mean for example in general relativity are you talking right, about right. the adm mass adm exactly energy? so that's why i said that it has to be an asymptotically flat space time because if it's an asymptotic right. <laughs> right. you can define some a measure of a mass which is known as the adm mass right so the point is that energy itself is a very ill defined quantity in uh, gravitational theory but one thing that you right. can sort of uh, like you can sort of define an analog of mass if you can uh, if you are able to show that there exists a time like killing vector in your uh, space time which is also globally defined so if you have a globally defined right. time vector then you can like that's essentially corresponds to a mass in that particular right. mass you know uh, adm mass for asymptotically flat space time now uh, what 
the like the beautiful idea about uh, Witten's proof. So also the interesting thing is that this particular proof by Witten was uh, one of the like it was one of the four papers that was considered as the reason for giving him the Fields Medal. So oh, nice. I think this uh, his proof. Of, I think this was the like probably the main paper which was considered to be the one for given the Fields Medal. I think this positive energy theorem uh, proof and uh, his work on knot theory. Like these were like two of the most beautiful works that I think Michael Atia uh, on his Fields Medal committee he he basically said that yeah, Abbott is a physicist and his papers are also written in a physicist way. But I think the like the the beautiful proofs that he has given in both and the work that he has done on knot theory, like if we do not give a page minute to this guy, then probably no one is also deserving. So like this was amazing. Now what uh, like the beautiful idea about Witten's proof was that uh, so you essentially had to show that uh, energy in like the ADM mass of the energy corresponding to uh, your uh, space time in uh, like that satisfies particular assumptions that has to be that always has to be positive and from einstein's field equations what we know is that uh, uh, the essentially some some combination of curvature is proportional to the uh, energy momentum difference so we know that r mu nu minus half r g mu nu is yeah, proportional to the t mu nu in your space time and so if you can essentially show some kind of a bound on this r mu nu kind of thing you can sort of have a bound on the uh, team unit on the right hand side. And I think the, uh, the reverse of this argument is what the uh, effective field theory people are trying to argue these days. So we sort of know that there are these positivity bounds. And so you using the positivity bounds on team union, you can sort of derive what kind of R mu the R terms that you can have on the left hand side. Right, right. So uh, this is why it's very interesting because again, the proof of written also uses a particular thing that uh, you were alluding to right now. So what Witten tried to argue was, uh, uh, so I essentially have to show that there exists some bound on the kind, like the, the R mu that I have in my equation. And so uh, what Witten did was, he, con so he I think his original idea came from supergravity. So he was working with supersymmetric theories. So his point was that, uh, why don't I consider spinners in uh, my uh, gravitational space? So he essentially proved the positive mass or the positive energy theorem in like a page or something. So this was nice. like a brilliant idea of Witten. And I think that's exactly what your, uh, these positivity bounds and the, uh, this work on uh, the effective field theory people are doing, but this time in the reverse direction. Yeah. So what you're yeah. doing is since you have a bound on the right hand side on the mass and the energy in, on your space time, you are trying to look at what kind of terms I can admit on the left hand side, uh, such right. that the, these bounds are not violated. So this was like a very interesting idea by Witten. I think so. Witten original papers are like very beautiful things if you read them. He also writes very well. He he, he writes in a very lucid. This manner. is a thing that I am never able to understand because if you talk to any academic, uh, either in high energy theory <laughs> or anything, uh, because I think Witten's papers are ubiquitous. If you are in condensed matter or anything, I think you there are there will be some point of time where you will be reading some foundational work by Witten. Now the point is that if you talk to any academic, every like ninety percent of them will tell you that Witten's talks are like totally non-understandable. His paper, his papers, like his papers contain a lot of information. They'll be very like they'll be beautiful papers, but it will be very hard to decipher those papers. 
and the same goes for his stocks that if you if you like his stocks are annoying his stocks are very annoying i so that's that's the thing i'm i i don't find it like i have watched a lot of talks by vitel of course i did not understand much but every time i watch his talk i like it it just seems like very like i feel that no, i think I the problem is not the problem is not uh, like the like the, the the way he presents material but just his way of speaking is kind of right right his you know? very weird voice <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i think that's I what think puts you me. wouldn't uh, like the his voice is very different from how he how you would think his voice might sound like or something so that's one yeah, thing right. but the thing is that i've i've seen a lot of people complain about the fact that the way he organizes or the way he uh, gives his talks is not how some regular person would uh, organize his talks like he he essentially gives talks in a way that he just writes down everything that comes to his mind and then you have to connect all the dots or something like that but i never found it that way and i think even his yeah, paper no, are like it, they are not very yeah, hard to understand like you they are very straightforward if you just read them there his papers are more like elegant essays they are not very I, i mean he does not he does not write you know a lot of unnecessary calculations and you know exactly dude his paper his papers it's mostly words it's like it's mostly words his papers oh wow then i definitely love to read a few of his papers man yeah yeah you should read papers like he has, he writes amazing papers like there are a few papers by written that i think those papers it, it reads like a book and they are also very long like i think 150 200 pages every paper of written is like more than 100 pages so uh, like i mean sometimes i just read the first 10 pages and give up but still like he i i, I like written's papers i do not understand they are very lucid they are very lucid that that nobody can deny and especially if, if you read the very initial works by written like the his foundational works his work on knot theory i think his work on this positive energy theorem his work on supersymmetric quantum mechanics i think his work on supersymmetric quantum mechanics which was also considered uh, as one of the papers for his fields medal thing yeah, i think it's called supersymmetry and knot theory so you basically don't have to re- if you want to like get into supersymmetry if you want to study supersymmetry never study any other research except witten's uh, paper on supersymmetry and knot theory you do not need to study anything else there are a lot of resources on the market like a lot of books where people just complicate how to study supersymmetry and things like that like there is a book by wes and bagger which is essentially yeah. considered to be the standard uh, textbook of supersymmetry yeah. but it's a it's a horrible book i never yeah, it's a waste of time it's, it's a very annoying never right read. so this is a thing like uh, i mean i do not like to give uh, reading suggestions like if you talk to any say a junior or someone every time you talk to them about physics or anything the first question from their mouths is that oh, what is the book what book should i refer to to study this or something like that so that's uh, one of the reasons why i do not like talking to juniors for dostoevsky <laughs> exactly <laughs> i always tell them read a story book or a novel or something like which right. also brings me to the point of, about i think studying for one because i think this is a topic that a lot of people in nicer like to talk about like if like if you are at a, a particular institute like i said uh, one thing is that there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of people that keep on offering you free advice and things like that and most of those people uh-huh. turn out to be your seniors so uh, one thing that <laughs> i guess i realized the 
when i was in my first or second year was that uh, you should just take your advice by your seniors with a grain of salt because for one some things work for some people some things do not work for other people and also i mean uh, i guess that's also the thing why we do not like the curriculum and things like that that when you ask a lot of people for uh, say some references or reading advice the kind of things that you that they suggest you or the kind of uh, things that seem to be the standard references are the ones where uh, they you essentially have a chain of uh, how do you say like it's like a chain of things that you first have to study this thing then it will lead you to this thing and then you will have this thing right. it's like a and linear it, progression right it's like a exactly it's a linear progression so they'll always suggest a linear progression of things that you study this 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 book and then finally you will be able to understand that which i mean i think we have ranted about is garbage is garbage which is garbage which is stupid like a lot of bad adjectives adjectives i can use here and i think we ranted about this a lot in the academia episode right. also Right. but also the thing is that this linear way of studying things is like something i do not like because essentially you can like suppose i want to study a particular thing if you are sort of clear in your mind what you want to study then i i would say that there always exists a particular way of reading the through the stuff very non linearly such that you will be able to understand that stuff very well of course there will right. be things that you do not understand along the way but the thing is that once you study uh, like in a very non linear fashion or whatever works for you once you have like once the idea is very clear in your mind you will be able to read the other stuff and be able to connect it with what you already know so right. that's also the, often things often things that you are like reading right now as part of your linear progression you don't understand them now but you realize that after you have never somehow reached the end of your you know progression then you can come back and then you actually understand right right you don't understand that's the thing so that's the thing with this linear progression of studying things that you read through a, like there there is a list of things that you have to do so you do that like in some sense very mindlessly you don't think about why you are doing the ne- next thing or why you did the previous thing to do this thing and most of this will sound like most of the things that you are doing will seem very disconnected from each other but the point is that doing one like working through them in a in this particular chain will allow you to finally connect everything when you reach the end of your whatever this progression that you have and this is also some this is also thing and like i think this is a thing about formalized systems like things like uh, curriculums and anything that's very formalized in this way so for example if you say i think santosh is uh, taking piano classes or he was taking piano classes so if i remember santosh i completely agree so like those yeah. are for people who want to play it you know in a masterful way who want to learn exactly. music theory so this is exactly what i was alluding to if if you like so one like one thing that i probably should not say but the thing is that these formalized systems the reason that they exist is because there is some guy who wants to make money off uh, by teaching you this particular thing uh, but the thing is that this is uh, like this is not a bad thing i would say like of course uh, the guy is making money of you studying in a, a formalist sense that's fine because uh, essentially if you if you mindlessly follow that particular uh, formalist system that the guy is giving you then you can actually achieve mastery in that particular thing that's for sure but the point is that you like if you are sort of content with not being a master of that particular thing uh, at least in the short run then what you can do is that you can sort of rearrange that thing uh, like you can study or whatever work through that thing in a very non linear fashion 
and you can actually learn a very large amount of stuff in a very short amount of time so for example santosh when you were doing is just a question of efficiency you tailor to make uh, your own program and it will be more efficient than whatever so i mean of course it depends upon whether it would be efficient or not i think so like just off the top of my head i would say it's not very efficient to uh rearrange that thing because for one you have to sift through a lot of material by yourself and then you have to make the entire decision about what what sort of things you have to consider next so that's very inefficient if you on the other hand if you have a formalized system where you know what the next step you have to do for example say santosh is doing piano so if you if you look at like a general progression of people who do piano for 2 3 years what they'll be doing is they'll be learning scales they'll be learning chord progressions they'll be learning all these uh, i think the classical movements and stuff like that so for a long period of time you'll just be doing scales and these things and probably not be doing something that that's music in something like music for us for uncultured people like us right like you probably if you just follow that particular formal system you won't be able to play say some pop music or something like that but then on the other hand for uh someone like santosh who wants to play piano for their own satisfaction what they can do is that they can probably do those scale practices and stuff but they can totally check the system and then uh, look at some youtube tutorials about how to play the pop music by themselves and i think that, that so that's the thing that like i think that's a trade off between efficiency mastery and probably personal satisfaction so right. i mean i guess they like it it probably does not make much sense but i mean santosh probably if you would like to comment here but my point is that i i suppose for every formal system that we have out there of studying or learning anything there always exists a way that you can non linearly arrange that entire thing and like if you follow that by yourself of course it will be a bit inefficient but after the after you end up doing all that you will end up learning a lot more than someone who's basically just following the formal system but the pro, but the thing is that the guy who's probably following that formal system will probably be more proficient more efficient and even more skilled skillful than you i mean that guy but not happier <laughs> that that's probably my point my point is that you will probably be more satisfied and happy than the guy who is probably following that formal system right i mean this is too much uh, bitching about system and things like that so i think this is a good place to end this particular podcast episode yes santosh those samosas better have been fucking worth it because now i'm late for football 